Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 16th September with me in Welsh. Coming up is an interview I did recently with Nestle's Owen Bethel. We talked about how Nestle is managing its decarbonisation strategy, the role of business and climate advocacy, and how the relationships and power dynamics between governments and large corporates are shifting on environmental policy and why. So do stay listening for that. First though is some sustainable business news. Land conversion for agriculture remains the greatest driver of deforestation, according to a new study in the journal Science, and in fact is an even greater factor than previously thought. Studies have suggested that agricultural production drives 80% of tropical deforestation, but the new review of the current evidence suggests that 90-99% to of all deforestation in the tropics is caused directly or indirectly by agriculture. What is perhaps even more surprising is that while the land may be cleared with the intention of conversion to agriculture, only 45-65% results in actual production. The remainder is land cleared for speculation that never materialises, perhaps as a result of the land proving unsuitable for cultivation. The study, titled Disentangling the Numbers Behind Agricultural-Driven Tropical Deforestation, makes the case for strengthening forest and land use governance as the ultimate goal of any policy response. Policy should go beyond risk management for specific commodities towards more collaboration between producer and consumer markets. Better incentives for sustainable agriculture that discourage land conversion and support smallholder grower communities are what's required. Representatives of indigenous communities from all of the nine countries in the Amazon Basin have called for an international pact to preserve 80% of the Amazon forest by 2025. Plans for such a pact will be presented at the COP27 meetings in Egypt this coming November. A new report titled Amazonia Against the Clock suggests that some parts of the Amazon forest are already passing tipping points where forest ecosystems degrade to savanna because of deforestation, soil degradation and intensive agriculture. Brazil and Bolivia are reported to be where 90% of total deforestation and degradation in the region occurs. Deforestation across the Amazon has surged in recent years to record amounts, with violent attacks on indigenous peoples who in many cases act as guardians of the forests at the same time. The European Parliament has voted to strengthen proposals for deforestation regulation that would require companies to ensure that the products they sell in the EU are not linked to forest destruction or human rights abuses. MEPs voted to strengthen the draft proposals prepared by the European Commission, widening the scope of the regulation to include rubber, maize and leather, and to include conversion or degradation of other ecosystems beyond forests, such as the Cerrado grasslands in Brazil. Indigenous peoples' rights and the duties of companies to protect them in their supply chains are also strengthened in the revised proposals. The draft regulation now goes to the EU member state governments for final adoption in the European Council of Ministers. Outdoor apparel retailer Patagonia is often cited as an example of a well-run company that tackles its environmental and social impacts effectively. No doubt furthering the respect that many feel for the brand, its founder Yvonne Chunard has announced that the ownership of the company has been transferred from his family to a charitable trust. Under the new ownership structure, profits will go to tackling climate change, amounting to some $100 million a year, the company expects. Patagonia had already been donating 1% of annual profit to climate activism, but the founder said that he wanted to do much more. Innovation Forum's flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum returns on the 1st and 2nd of November in Amsterdam. As ever, the agenda will have an emphasis on open, candid debate and discussion, and we'll hear from the likes of Golden Nagging Resources, Dole Food, Tesco, Natura, Craft, Diageo, and many more, and I do hope that you can join us. Kicking off the autumn event series, our Future of Plastics and Packaging conference is on the 11th and 12th of October in Amsterdam, with a focus this year on how business can build circular packaging solutions that deliver impact at scale. Among the expert speakers and panellists taking part will be senior representatives of Tetra Pak, Unilever, Mars, Petcare, Mattel and Britvik. Full details of how to join us are, of course, online. 
couple of weeks ago, I was lucky enough to speak with Owen Bethel, Environmental Impact Lead, Global Public Affairs at Nestle. We talked about the challenges in setting net zero targets and in particular reflected on the role of companies in climate advocacy. We're going to be talking a little bit about climate advocacy, but before we do that, perhaps you could outline what Nestle's priorities are regarding climate change. Climate change is a major priority for Nestle. We are clearly a big food and beverage company with a significant carbon footprint, mainly located in our agricultural supply chain. So our climate roadmap, which is targeted at a net zero by 2050 ambition, looks at all three scopes of our activity, particularly agriculture, where the greatest impact lies and where some of the greatest challenges are. A lot of those challenges require solutions that go beyond our four walls as a company, and therefore working with other organizations is an important priority for us and looking at the kind of broader environment that we operate in as a company. Some of the main solutions that we're focused on are things like regenerative agriculture, where we are reducing the negative externalities associated with growing food and actually improving things like soil health and the carbon retention and capture potential of soil. We're also looking at insetting activities where we improve tree cover in the regions that we source from, and that includes the farms that we get our coffee from and other ingredients. And then beyond that, we're looking at cleaner logistics, cleaner sources of energy and electricity, and also our packaging as well. So it's really a kind of end-to-end process all the way through the company and relies on an effort by many different dedicated individuals, both here in Switzerland at our headquarters, but right the way throughout the company in the many markets that we operate in. Let's talk a bit about Net Zero. What specifically does Nestle's Net Zero roadmap look like and how do you go about setting intermediate targets on the way to your Net Zero destination? So our Net Zero roadmap was published in late 2020. Our first main target is a 20% absolute reduction in emissions by 2025, which is rapidly approaching as an objective. And that means reducing emissions every year and those emissions will continue to fall even as the company grows and the company delivers business success. So there's a a double challenge there in terms of reducing emissions in an absolute form rather than relative to to company performance. And then the next big milestone is a 50% reduction in absolute emissions by 2030, which is aligned with what climate science tells us is necessary to stay within a 1.5 degree pathway and aligned with the Paris Agreement. That is, again, a very challenging objective, given it is an absolute reduction. And all of that takes us on a road to 2050, which is the latest point by which we want to achieve net zero, reducing as far as possible emissions throughout our supply chain and our operations on the way there. What are the challenges from having to make these absolute emission reduction targets? How do you marry up the sort of need for growth or the desire for growth of the company versus the need for absolute emissions reduction? I mean, that's a quite a challenge. It certainly is quite a challenge, yes. And I think what it requires is really the integration of action on climate throughout the business. So when you're looking at your strategic business plan, you need to think about not only pure growth, if you like, in sales and success in a financial point of view, but also how that success can be achieved while reducing emissions. And I think there's plenty of opportunity there, particularly in food and beverage. We've seen increasing interest in things like plant-based options, which deliver a lower carbon footprint to the consumer, and also through innovation in agriculture, where we can work with our farmers to help them address emissions in a way that's actually good for them as well from a business perspective. It's all about integration. It's also about looking to the future and thinking about resilience and looking at that as a business issue as well. So there's going to be no growth if your supply chain is massively impacted by climate change. And we need to think about that 
in a holistic way in order to achieve net zero, but also to actually deliver the numbers, I think. Yes, it's an interesting point, isn't it? That in fact, you have to engage with climate change for there to be future growth because your supply chains become encumbered by the effect of, it, of uh, climate change. Growth becomes very difficult. Clearly, collaboration is essential for decarbonising economies, but touching that already. What are the challenges for Nessa and others that make collaboration difficult? Collaboration is something that we've done for many years with certain types of organisation. We've had a long-standing programme on reducing the risk of deforestation in some of our key supply chains. That has involved working with different partners, both on the ground and in terms of technology. And so working closely with the Starling Satellite Monitoring Service, for example, where that's helped us address those risks and build more certainty around where we're sourcing from. And those types of collaboration are long-standing and relatively easy to achieve. I think where it's more challenging is where you start to collaborate more with direct competitors, for example. The rules around that are designed to be robust and to ensure that there isn't any bad practice. And that's absolutely right. But it also means that you have a sort of additional consideration before you can dive into collaborating directly with other companies. I also think that we're talking increasingly about collaborating with farmers organizations, with those who are directly in the supply chain, where we need to build confidence, we need to ensure we're on the same page with regards to what we're trying to achieve. And we also need to make sure that the interests of the farmers are central to any plan, rather than imposing an idea or pushing an agenda without thinking about that and putting that really at the core of it. So I think collaboration is challenging, but certainly possible across these different areas. And we just need to think about how to overcome those roadblocks on the way there. Let's think about collaboration with peer companies a little bit more. What are the challenges there? We are talking about legal problems, antitrust legislation, that sort of thing. Is it then the role of sector organisations to provide a sort of a safe space for that type of collaboration? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Antitrust is there for a reason. It's very important. It's been built up over many years to avoid negative behaviours and negative effects on markets. That's important to remember. At the same time, I think there's increasing consensus between different companies on the need for action on climate and that action by one company alone isn't going to solve the problem. It's really about a cross-sector approach and alignment around things like what is regenerative agriculture? What is a legitimate insetting program? How do we work together on things like rolling out electrification of heavy trucks? What about renewable electricity? How do we collaborate to make sure that there's more of that available across the sector and that we're all pulling in the same direction? It's a new phase of collaboration. It's a new way of working with competitors that sometimes is straightforward and sometimes runs into some of these slightly more tricky considerations vis-a-vis antitrust laws. Working closely with colleagues from legal and regulatory in different companies means that we can work together on navigating those challenges. I know that you do collaborate with others as around advocating for climate change. How far do you think there's a duty in companies to positively advocate for action on climate change? Well, I think it's actually a really important part of any net zero plan, particularly for a company where you have a significant scope three impact, because those impacts aren't necessarily in your direct control. You need to work through suppliers. You need to work with competitors. You need to work with other players in, in that supply chain to make a positive difference. Again, there's a limit to how much impact you can have without there being a strong regulatory framework around that. If there's a duty, the duty really is about achieving your own objective. If you set yourself a net zero by 2050 goal, and that includes scope three, the way to achieve that is by advocating for some broader changes that will level up your impact and actually make it easier for your company to achieve what it's set out to achieve on climate. 
So that kind of duty actually speaks to things like investors who are looking for progress. They're looking for reductions in emissions, which rely on that broader regulatory or political framework, which you operate within. It's about meeting stakeholder demands, stakeholder expectations. And it's also about making a contribution, I think, to broader climate change goals, including at the national level. If a country sets a net zero goal, the only way that is going to be achieved is by companies helping to achieve it. So we have a duty to advocate to say, we think this is how you're going to best achieve that goal. And we want to work with you to help make it happen. And that's really what we're focused on at the moment is around the food system. How do we make sure food systems form a more central part of country level climate goals? And how do we make sure that private sector has quite a clear and proactive role in helping make that happen? Can you give us some examples of what Nestle does specifically in its approach to climate advocacy? We contribute to a lot of consultations and opportunities to comment on things like, for example, the European Green Deal, the Farm to Fork strategy, similar legislation coming out in other countries where we can say the business community supports the intention here. We support, particularly on the agriculture side, maybe the redeployment of some of those subsidies that we've seen in the past towards greener and less carbon intensive outcomes or ways of helping farmers transition, which means that they don't lose out on their income. And so supporting positive legislative action, regulatory action by certain governments is one part of advocating. I think another part of it is saying that we need support from lots of different types of organization for the same goal. If we're looking at, for example, renewable energy or in particular, electrification of transport, it requires quite a diverse range of stakeholders to say that's a good thing. We're behind that. And we can advocate for it by saying Nestle wants to electrify our fleet, but we can't do that if the infrastructure is not there and we can't do it if the truck manufacturer is not sufficiently incentivized to switch or to offer those products. It's working in partnership with public authorities and other companies to drive change in the same direction. And advocacy really is all about that. Thinking of your supply chain, are there any particular sectors in where you focus attention? We have quite a lot of focus on the dairy industry, given that we're a major purchaser of milk, both fresh milk and milk derivatives. And that actually takes place right around the world. And I think the interesting thing there is that Nestle is pushing ahead to some extent, regardless of the legislative environment, because we need to make progress here and now. We have a lot of projects in different countries where we're looking at how to reduce the emissions associated with dairy, things like rolling out renewable electricity on farm, improving the way that manure is managed, looking at soil carbon sequestration, these kinds of interventions. And we're sharing that knowledge and taking that also to public authorities to say, look, we think this kind of thing works. If this could be scaled up through the right policy environment, you're going to actually make a significant dent in your national emissions or regional emissions. And let's collaborate on that. We have our projects, we have our pilots, we're doing a lot of investing, but it's a little bit of a drop in the ocean unless it's picked up more broadly. And I think that's where the advocacy bit comes in as well. And do you think then helping to scale these sort of pilot projects that you mentioned, is is that really where Nestle can make the biggest impact on climate change and then pushing for climate change action? Yes, our biggest carbon impact is in agriculture. And so if we can show what kind of interventions work, and then help collaborate with other companies and public authorities to scale those interventions, that is definitely where we're going to have the biggest impact. It also applies to some extent to what we would call insetting activities as well. So that's looking at the broader landscape and saying, okay, how can we ensure that trees are planted in the right place or that things like agroforestry are rolled out where trees play a role in the agricultural system that's there? If you do that in the right way, you can really create quite a significant impact. 
Where we play perhaps a little bit more of a supporting role, but nonetheless an important role is, is more on the energy and electricity side. That's a slightly smaller part of our carbon footprint as a big name, as a company that employs lots of people and has a significant economic role. We can be a standard bearer for the need for more renewable energy and that transition to accelerate. Talked a little bit just now about relationships between governments and large companies. How are the relationships and the power dynamics between governments and large corporates shifting in climate action, do you think? The business community is becoming more vocal. I think that we are becoming more confident in terms of our engagement with public authorities and that we are looking to be a delivery partner. The power dynamic has gone from it being a concept pushed by science and civil society to being a business priority and a public policy priority. So that dynamic has shifted in terms of we can actually be a delivery partner. As I said before, if a country has a net zero goal, the only way they're going to achieve that is if the companies operating in that country make a significant contribution. And therefore, I think we can go to governments and say, we've got some solutions, we've got some ideas on how we can make this happen, and let's try and work together to accelerate it and make progress as soon as possible, because it's essential, both from a doing the right thing perspective, but also a business resilience and business success perspective. We are on the front foot looking for the collaboration opportunities now, whereas previously, perhaps we were observing what was going on and, and considering the potential impact. And has that really gone from the situation where in, perhaps in the past it was better just from a corporate perspective to not get involved in these sort of issues, just to kind of, as you say, sit back and observe, whereas in fact now there's a greater realisation that unless companies like Nestle, big companies with big impacts, unless you do get involved and take positive action, then we're going to be in real trouble and the impacts of climate change will escalate further. I think so. You do have to talk the talk and then walk the talk first. What we did was we set out a net zero 2050 ambition in 2019, which was relatively early in the process. And that actually doesn't seem like very long ago, but there were not that many companies that had that full scope commitment in place. And I think that gave us a bit of a license to say, we're in the game here. We're here to make a big contribution. And that contribution actually is in the region of 92 million tons of CO2 per year that is in scope for our company. Just to put that in context, that's actually double the emissions of our home country, Switzerland. So if you're thinking about how important companies are, that gives you some sense of the scale. And therefore, if we're committed to reducing that impact down to basically net zero, that's really important for the international community to recognise and also help deliver. There's a real win-win there for us to go to countries, national governments with. You can only do that if you've got the right intention, if you're willing to invest, if you're willing to put your reputation a little bit on the line there and say, yes, it's extremely difficult, but we know it's the right thing to do and we want to work with governments and others to help achieve it. Thinking of the future then, what are the milestones that we should be looking for in the next, say, five and ten years? I know that you and others have set out ambitions and targets. You know, what are the things in particular are you looking for that will say to you, yes, we are making the progress that we need to make? The main milestone that everybody's talking about really is this 2030, 50% reduction. Globally, there's a view that approximately 50% reduction by 2030 is what's necessary to stay within a two degree pathway. And I think there's a lot of attention focused on that, but we need to start showing that we're on the right path to that 50% reduction. So every year, emissions need to come down quite significantly. And so the milestones will start very soon. In 2021, from our perspective, we reduced our emissions by about 4 million tonnes versus where they would have been in a sort of business as usual scenario. This year, we're hoping to go further than that. Still, we're not there yet in terms of the scale or pace of reduction required. So we need to also step up our game. Once we see things like the European Union's Green Deal kick in, the recently passed legislation in the US, there may be more positive signals 
that the world is starting to decarbonize and that will help. There are some specific milestones like 2023, there's going to be a global stock take on progress through the, the UN FCCC process. And I know that organizations like WBCSD are looking at how can business show their contribution, a kind of corporate accountability mechanism for progress. I think that's going to be important and to be transparent as well about the challenges, not just the successes, but you know the things that are more difficult. Looking further ahead, 2025 for us is an important milestone when we have our 20% absolute reduction target expiring. There's going to be milestones, but constant pressure at the same time to report and to show that things are actually developing the right way. People need a bit of hope around all of this at the moment. It's a little bit in short supply at times. I was talking with a climate strategy expert recently, and we were talking about the challenge for businesses whereby they're prepared through science-based targets and whatever else to do their fair share. But of course, there are many other companies globally who won't. Is there a recognition of that at Nestle and also recognition that perhaps the most progressive businesses will have to go beyond what is their, quote, fair share to ensure that we can keep global warming within 1.5 or even 2 Celsius of warming? I agree there is not a fair share at the moment in that I think only one third of the 2000 largest companies in the world have a net zero commitment even. And even fewer of those are aligned with the 1.5 degree pathway and even fewer are actually being implemented and making progress. I'm glad and proud that Nestle is one of those companies right at the forefront. And I think the way that we create a positive impact beyond just our roadmap is by A, advocating for broader changes. Those changes should push companies to do more. B, it's around collaborating and showing what works with peers. But most importantly, it's about working with our suppliers. So we have in excess of 100,000 suppliers, tier one suppliers. They are the companies really that are doing the work on the ground. They're sourcing the ingredients, coffee, sugar, palm oil, et cetera, cocoa. If we can get those companies to commit and to work and reduce their emissions also by 50% by 2030, you're actually going to create an exponential impact, right, beyond just Nestle's particular supply chain, because those suppliers don't just supply us, they supply others too. So I think this kind of system-wide impact is possible by showing that we as a leader are going in this direction and others should come along too on the journey. It'd be fascinating to see how it all comes together. And as you say, we need to keep looking out for the milestones of the next few years to ensure that the progress is being made now that will enable the overall progress to be made by 2030 and by 2050. But for now, Owen Bethel from Nestle, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. There's the latest op-ed from Marlon Baker just published, this time reflecting on lessons learned from the recent challenges faced by the apparel sector's Higindex labelling scheme. Well worth a read. And don't forget that if you want to join either the Plastics and Packaging or the Sustainable Landscapes and Frontiers conferences in Amsterdam this autumn, everything you need to know about these is available online. But that's it for now. I've been Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.